for joining us through Facebook Live. We welcome you and invite you to come join us here, 330 Larch Lane in Lexington, Kentucky. And I know we would love to have you visit with us, and we would welcome you. And we pray that the Lord blesses you with his word this morning. Second Timothy chapter 1, the title of the message today is The Peace and Certainty. Peace we have in certainty. Look at verse 12 of Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. For the which cause I also suffer these things, nevertheless I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this day that you've given us. It's a day where we can rejoice and be glad in it. Father, thank you for your grace of salvation, your word, your effectual power, the blood of your Son, which purges our sins and cleanses us. Father, may we just present your word in truth this morning. Father, may you just use it to stir in the hearts of those who hear. And we'll give you all the praise and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Basically, there are three very perplexing questions in life today of mankind. And they all revolve around sin, sorrow, and death. No matter which country you live in, no matter which era of time that you've lived in, there are three basic questions of life that are a mystery to us. The topics of sin, suffering, and death. Now think about this. I'll get a little philosophical this morning. Think about the fact, without the Word of God, would you know of a reason that there's good and evil? Think about that. Now, the world today wants to define good and evil as what is in the eyes of the beholder, right? So whatever is good, whatever is evil. But let me ask you, if everyone is entitled to their own definition of good and evil, is there such a thing as good and evil? To the rapist, he doesn't think what he's doing is wrong. Does that mean it's not wrong? So where is the definition? What about sin? What about wickedness? What about the awful things we see mankind do? I mean, uh, this morning, Brother Isaac asked uh, for us to pray for Israel and, and the Gaza Strip and all of the, just the awful things that we see that they did beheading babies and, and the Palestinians doing all of these just notorious things, wicked things. Where does wickedness come from? That is the question of sin. Where does sin come from? Can you define, can you ask? I mean, think about that for a minute. We really don't know. Outside of the Word of God, do we even have an answer for it? Secondly, what about sorrow? What's the use for sorrow? I think Thomas Jefferson said, I've got no need for grief. Now, Thomas Jefferson had a lot of personal loss in his life, just over and over, children and wives and things of that nature. What about sorrow? Ask the pharmaceutical companies if there's sorrow in the world today. 
And then ask yourself, why is there sorrow? Third, death. We can't explain death. Uh, we certainly can't explain life. Why are we born? Think about that for a minute, that we are self-aware. Isn't that amazing that we are self-aware, that no other creature, no other species, no other plant, no other, if anything, are self-aware as mankind? That we understand, we even have questions of philosophy. We even have questions, why are we here? What are we doing? So these questions are perplexing to mankind. And there's no answer really out there. Except the Word of God is clear on these three topics. And we're going to look at what the Word of God says about these three things. About sin, sorrow, and death. Well, first of all, there you go. There's our single source of truth. A lot of people will say, I don't know if I believe what the Bible says. There you go. Is the Bible reliable? Is it a reliable source of truth for us to answer those questions? Well, why are we here? Where are we? What's it all about? What's the purpose? What's the meaning? Is there right and wrong? Is there a God? What about the values which I have? Uh, they seem right to me in my own eyes. But it, does, is my creator, am I sinning against God? Well, what does the Bible say? You know, Pilate, when Jesus came before Pilate, it's often, you know, skipped over what Pilate says. And it is the most profound question because Jesus was talking about truth. And Pilate had this question. He said, what is truth? And then he moved on. But if you stop and you dissect what Pilate asked, isn't that what everybody asks? What is truth? What's the standard of right and wrong? Is there a standard of right and wrong? Are there, is there truth out there or is, it just, is truth just relative? Is it, there isn't really a single truth because everybody defines truth the way it is. And, and let me tell you this. The morals which we have, how we all have the same objective moral value through time, through places on earth, we all have this intrinsic uh, intuitive. Intu intuition means something you don't have to be taught. You don't have to be taught that it's wrong to kill. You don't have to be taught that it's wrong to lie, wrong to steal, wrong to bear false witness, to accuse somebody of something they didn't do. No one had to teach you those things. It's intuitive. That's God's law within you. So, Here's the question. So people will say, you know what? And when they explain away God, they say, well, it's the village. It's the community that defined morals. It's the community that defined what was right and wrong. But really, did you really need a community to teach you that? Or did you already know that? I didn't need a community to teach me those things. It was already within me. It was as if my creator put it in me already. And not only did he put it in me, he put it in you, he put it in you, he put it in, he put it in everybody. Through all time, the same objective moral values. And so when we sin, we feel guilt, don't we? And so where there's guilt, that implies law. But I, I can't have guilt. Why do I have guilt if there's no standard of truth? But there is a standard of truth. That's why you have guilt. And that's sin. 
So what does the Bible say about itself? And so Pilate, like, what is truth? And what did Jesus answer Pilate? He says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. There is a single source of truth, and it's him. It's Jesus. It's Jesus, the Son of God. God the Son, who came down. Now, what does the Bible say? What's the Bible's claims? Is the Bible reliable? Now, listen to this. It claims, the Bible claims to be the sole source of God's authorship. It is God's book. It originates from the very breath of God. As 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. That means God breathed. The Bible is, the, is God's autobiography to us. God has written the Bible. The Bible is written by God to us about God. So it is about him. It's his witness. The words, thus saith the Lord, occur 279 times in the Old Testament. And the New Testament is the recorded word of Jesus. So the Bible claims to be the very words of God. Now, think about these statistics. Despite there being 40 different authors originating from three different continents over a space of 2,000 years, it maintains a perfect consistency of its message. Its words all unerringly point to Christ. They point to the Messiah, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of those who profess, of the world. There's all kinds of historic evidence that's coming out, archaeological evidence coming out. The people will discount the, the stories of the Bible and say, well, that city never existed. And lo and behold, five days later, archaeologists dig up the city. And so there's all this evidence that is coming and it is validating that the Word of God, like the, the, the Bible is not a history book, but what history it contains is truth. The Bible is not a science book, but what science it contains is true. So there's historic evidence. Luke gives uh, secular dates of rulers and kings and, and Romans and, and things that have all been verifiable and they're all verified. Also, observable science that we have, observable science evidence all supports the claims and the events and the timeline of the Bible. Something that we need to understand and realize. You know, it seems like there's just, people just need to be educated on deception. Did the act of evolution, now I took an evolution class and I want to be specific because I don't want to sound like one of those who doesn't know what I'm talking about. There's something called speciation through adaptation by reproductive isolation. Okay, so what that means is evolution. What that means is that a species adapted, the strongest survived, and became a species that didn't have a tail, got a tail, in order to, to hang in the tree, in order to survive. And because they're isolated and in reproduction, their offspring would have a tail. And so that's how we became man. That's the whole reproductive, that's whole speciation through adaptation. Now, here's the thing. 
Microbiology, there's evolution that happens all the time. That's why you have to take all of your antibiotics. Because bacteria will evolve. It will, it will find a way to live. It'll find a way to survive. And if you don't take all your antibiotics, it's going to, it's going to learn how to survive. That's in microorganisms. But in speciation, where you've got a slug becoming a monkey, that's not observable. And secondly, that is something that was formulated by atheists. The fathers of evolution were atheists. You know what? You, uh, you can talk to evolutionists or uh, those who believe in theistic evolution, and that's sad when somebody just doesn't completely reject it but tries to fit it into creation. They say, well, there's a God, but, you know, God just set everything in order and everything else evolved. And so they will say, you know what, uh, that's what God did. And, but here's the thing is they do not have a mechanism or a way of proving. And, you know, when you get down to the whole reason that it was even introduced as a theory, the reason was is to explain away God. They don't want God. But now you're not smart unless you do believe it. You're not in academia unless you do believe it. You're not taken seriously unless you do believe it. Don't you know that this whole thing was invented to explain away God? The observable science which we see in the world today, all is evidence that the Bible's claims are true. The Bible is around 6,000 years old. There's a lot of good YouTube videos that are out there. Uh, we don't have time to go into them all. But what do you think about the Bible? The Bible is one of a kind. There is no other book like the Bible, nor will there ever will be like the Bible. There is so many amazing details about the Bible that it defies natural explanation and it goes into the realm of miraculous. As a miracle, the Bible is so consistent considering its content and authors. Think about this. The writers of the Bible were shepherds, kings, scholars, fishermen, prophets, a military general, a cupbearer, a priest, all penned portions of the scripture. They had different immediate purposes for writing, whether they were recording history, giving spiritual or moral instruction, or pronouncing judgment. They composed their works from places of prisons, palaces, the wilderness, places of exile while writing history, laws, poetry, prophecy, and proverbs. In the process of writing, they laid bare their personal emotions, expressing anger and frustration, joy and love. Yet despite all of these uh, marvelous array of topics and goals, the Bible is flawless with an internal consistency. It never contradicts itself or its theme. Never. I mean, 40 different writers over 2,000 years on three different continents, and it never contradicts itself. From Genesis all the way to Revelation, we see man's repeated rebellion against God. That's what we see. We see sin. 
dominate man. But we also see God's promise to extend his love and his grace and his mercy to unworthy people. We see that God has made known his plan of redemption from ever since Adam when he fell. God repeatedly promised and expanded throughout all the centuries in the Old Testament. They all pointed to Jesus Christ, the great work of love which God would do in performing salvation through the sacrifice of himself, himself becoming, as we are looking in Hebrews, and if, and if you're not here on Wednesdays, I, I really uh, hope you can get here. Some people can't. But what a blessing we saw last week in Hebrews about how Jesus was born to die. God himself was born to die, the second person of the Godhead, so that he would suffer in my place, my substitutionary death. And think about how praiseworthy that is. Not only did he come and he suffered and he died in my place, but he died in the place for someone who hated him beforehand. I wasn't looking for God to save me. I was fine. But he came and he suffered and he died in my place. And what a praiseworthy that his name would be lifted above every name. So we see that it, his exaltation is through his work of suffering for sin. But the three things, I know we've only got a few mi more minutes to go, but I want to talk about these three things briefly with you. The Bible clearly explains, and isn't there peace and knowing? The things that I love to pick out of scriptures is every time it says, and we know, and I know, and we can know. We can know these things. And when we can know these things, it brings peace. And it certainly brings peace to those three topics that do not bring peace in your life. Sorrow and sin and death. So we see in 2 Timothy, he deals with this. He deals with the sin question first. In verse 12, for I know, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I committed unto him against that day. Turn with me to 1 John. Go to your right. A few books over to 1 John chapter 1. So hopefully we've established that can you believe the Bible? Is the Bible reliable? Show me any other word of God. Show me any other place we can go to that has been miraculously preserved and miraculously consistent and is God's autobiography. It is God's actual word. Show me an explanation outside of the word of God for the things you can't explain. So yes, the word of God's reliable. I mean, not only do I believe it by faith, but there's something called apologetics where you prove from the outside the validity of something using outside evidence. And we use plenty of evidence. Did you know that the word of God has over 6,000 copies? 
There is no other ancient text anywhere near that much produced. Homer's Iliad has 500 copies. That's the closest. The Word of God has 6,000 copies. So yes, God has preserved His Word. Look at 1 John chapter 1. Look at verse 5. This then is the message which we have heard of Him and declare unto you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But look at this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Verse 9. If we confess our sins. Now listen. This is not talking about some superficial confession booth that religions of this world have taken and they've exploited the Word of God and they've made it mockery. You can go to the Catholic Church and get in a booth and confess all of the things that you have to a priest there. This is not talking about that. That priest has no authority to forgive any of your sins. It's a mockery of the Word of God. It's false religion. Well, I, I'll get in trouble for that. Who are we confessing our sins to? Not some organization that can incorporate you into their little wheel of their mechanism and suck all of your bank account dry and, and put you here and make you think that you're something that when you're nothing. No, we are scum. We are sinners. We need God's mercy. There's no uh, contending with God. There's no explaining away what we are before God. God knows who you are. He knows you're a sinner. He knows you're falling short. He knows the secrets you are telling. He knows those lies. He knows it all. But what does it say in verse 9? Hallelujah. If we confess our sins to Him with all our heart. It says, first of all, you've got to admit you do have sin. That's what he says. In verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, you're deceiving yourself. And that is not good. People send themselves to hell. You understand that? Because you're deceiving yourself before who you are, before an all-holy God. But if you admit, if you see yourself for who you are before an all-holy God, you get down on your knees and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner who has unpure thoughts, who does unpure things. And Lord, forgive me. That's what he says in verse 9. 
He is faithful and he is just. Aren't you happy this morning that he is? Aren't you happy this morning he's promised to forgive you if you just admit to him and come to him that you're a sinner? And what does he promise to do to cleanse us from all unrighteousness? That's what the word of God says about sin. There's only one way. There's only one way to be forgiven, and that's through him. Do you believe the word of God? Do you believe what the Bible says? If you do, that's what it says that we must do. The second thing is sorrow. Oh, sorrow. Can you explain sorrow? Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And here's another we know. <laughs> Aren't you glad we know? Paul says, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. We've dealt with sin. Now let's deal with sorrow, the sorrow of life. And we know in Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Paul, just like Jesus, was a man who knew sorrows in his life. He suffered great things in his life and persecution. But what did he say? He said, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. He lost everything. He lost his position, his inheritance, his job, his friends. He was in sorrow and weariness. He was in sorrow and affliction. He had sorrow in his life. I want you all to please with me pray for little Cash Lawson's family. Pray for Cash Lawson. Do you know who Cash Lawson is? He's been on a prayer list. He's four years old. He's had a heart transplant. And just when they thought everything was looking good, his lung collapsed. Surgery after surgery after surgery for this little four-year-old. Could you imagine the heartbreak of those parents? The sorrow. I mean, I don't know how many of y'all have had children or grandchildren, but isn't four-year-old the most precious age and of innocence, of sweetness, of just pure, I mean, I mean, I love five years old because they're old enough to do things, you know, independently. But think of a four-year-old and this little boy and the sorrow. This little boy didn't do anything to deserve that sorrow. The parents, think about the sorrow that they're going through. And it makes me, makes me cry when I think about it. Imagine your four-year-old going through and not having a life. Just one thing after another. And one of the things that broke my heart was the confusion of why they're getting pricked with a needle for the 10th hundredth time. 
or why they look at you and they wonder why you're letting them do this to you. They don't have the understanding and it breaks and sinks your heart more into sorrow and the sorrow. How could you look up at anybody and say, you know what? God is good. You can only say those words to another believer. When we lost mother, well, I mean, the Lord knew exactly where mother was, but we, she went on to be with the Lord. And I went to dad and we were just, the first thing that came to my mouth was God is good. And he hugged me and cried and he said, yes, he is. Do you think somebody outside of the Lord would have any knowledge of what you were talking about? That seems like that would be kind of cruel, wouldn't it? To say to somebody who doesn't know the Lord. But in the midst of our suffering and sorrow, <laughs> we know we have our Savior who blazed the trail. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He bore my grief. He bore my sorrows. He did all these things and he victoriously overcame them and conquered them. So that way, when I follow through him, I don't have to be weighed down in hopelessness. For I know my God rules. I know he's on his throne and he's gone before me. And when I reach death, that's the third thing. When I reach death, I know whose hand is going to be right there. I'm not going to die alone. You're not going to die alone. He's there. There's not one dark cave of death Jesus has not explored. He's done it all. And he's victorious over it. What a savior. What an answer to these three questions. Oh, is that you today? Are you certain? There's peace in knowing, isn't there? And we know. We didn't get to go to the last one. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. When we talk about death, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says this. For we know, there it is again, that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For we know this. Do you know what a tabernacle was primarily used for? Mobility. It wasn't permanent. It's a tent. This earthly tabernacle is not permanent. It's temporary. We're on the move. And pretty soon we're going to unfold these tents and put them away and be received up in the glory where the builder and maker is God. That's our permanent dwelling. Many of our loved ones have already started this process. They've already folded up their tent and they said, you know what? I'm done with this earthly house. I'm done with this tent. It no longer serves the purpose which God has intended for me. But now they're in transition. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We see that. We don't have time to go into that. But the Bible teaches to be absent from our body is to be present with the Lord. Jesus looked over to the thief on the cross 
And he said, today thou will be with me in paradise. He didn't say that thief, no, you're going to go to sleep for a few hundred centuries. And then at the resurrection, then you'll be with me. No, he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. There wasn't more justification. There wasn't a justification process. Jesus paid it all right there on the cross. And today we will be with him. Oh, I pray that this is you. I pray you're saved. I pray that you have come to, and the Lord has shown you the reliability of his word, how remarkable this book is when you compare it to any other book that has ever existed. This is the word of God. It's the only book that ever explains the things that are unexplainable, the mysteries of life, and how we know that it was all of God, how Man has over and over and over rebelled against God with rebellious heart, one to ignore God, but in his grace and his mercy, today he has extended unto you his salvation. Today's the day of salvation if you've not been saved. I ask that you just ask the Lord to save you. Pray that he would save you. And he will. He will. Or maybe your need is something else this morning. Maybe scriptural baptism. Maybe it's something else you want to bring before the church. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for this day you've given us. This short time which we're here upon earth. Father, maybe we be faithful and praise your name. Lord, we know that when we're not faithful, you are. What a great Savior. What a great promise. Father, we know that you're on your throne and all things are after your will and your counsel. All things will be, are accomplished in your son. Father, we ask, Lord, that you open the eyes of the blind, that they see this great, great truth, this great, great life that we have now of knowing with certainty that you have saved us from sin, you've saved us from corruption, from death, that we have victory in this life. Lord, I pray for those, Lord, who could not be here today to be with them. You know each heart, each need. Encourage and lift them up. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand, please. I'm going to ask Brother Richard.